Before we head into Matthew, I'd like to pray a blessing over the children as they uh, are taught the word and interact with their teachers. Lord, I, I pray for the children. I pray for the children's classes and their teachers. I pray that you would um, give the teachers clarity of thought, clarity of mind, and clarity of spirit, that they might joyfully transmit your word to these children of ours. I pray that you would bless them uh, with your grace and with your mercy. I pray that they would see your great salvation clearly as children, for you do have a special place in your heart for our children. And we do also here, Lord. I pray that you would bless us here too in uh, the congregation here as we hear from your word. I pray that you would be mighty in our hearts and that there will be nothing withheld from you. Lord, we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice. You have made us holy by your blood. You have made us pure by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You have made us purely righteous before your eyes. And we can rest in the Sabbath, our Sabbath, Jesus Christ, who has given us a way to rest from our works, to try to attain your favor, for you have given it to us freely in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be encouraged and uplifted and built up as your holy temple within our bodies through your word today by your Holy Spirit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, as some of you know, we've been going through Matthew the last several weeks, um, doing a series through the book. Uh, that'll be the first book in the New Testament. Um, today we'll be in Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses here, starting in verse 1. The word says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. For he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. 
When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Not many of us know somebody who is quite like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a special man, with a special purpose, nonetheless. We read a little bit about his description. He was a man who lived in the desert. He ate locusts and honey, just what he found out in the desert. He dressed in skins from animals that he probably killed himself. He had no interest in the things of the city, the things of town. He had a mission. He had a purpose. He knew his mission. He knew his purpose. In Luke, it talks about how John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from the time he was in the womb. He grew up knowing why he was here. He grew up knowing that he would be the one that Isaiah prophesied, to be the one who said, of whom it was spoken, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we read a little bit about his preaching. He was a very forceful man. He didn't care what people thought of him. His ministry was a ministry of repentance, to draw people to repentance. And repentance is going to be our focus today. What exactly is repentance? That's what John's ministry was. His ministry differed from the ministry of Jesus. His ministry was to prepare the people to receive Jesus when he came. He was not there to bring people to salvation. He was there to bring people to Jesus who would then in turn save them. And we're going to see a little bit about how repentance, this ministry of his, plays a part in this. And we read, well, Rich read Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 5 earlier. How it speaks of, John is coming to make the path straight. Now what exactly does that mean? To, up till this point, spiritually speaking, there have been great mountains that the people could not cross. There have been deep valleys that the people also could not cross. They could not trek this path. It is too hard for them. And John the Baptist was to prepare the way by bringing down these high mountains, by bringing up these low valleys, to make a clear path to the one who could save them. Up until this point, ultimate justification had been un unreachable. They had the law, but no man could perfectly keep the law, so all these people were condemned. One sin, one point of breaking the law, we read elsewhere, is condemnation. And John, his ministry was to prepare the way for the one who could come and wipe out this condemnation that we deserve because of our sin. He is not the one to provide the salvation himself, but he is to, pre he is to prepare the people for the coming of the one who would come and save them from their sins, to provide ultimate justification, to provide a way for sins to be obliterated apart from our feeble works, which have proven themselves to be unfruitful. And his ministry... As, we've, as I've stated already, it was a ministry of teaching the people to repent. 
Now that is a little confusing because usually you and I think of repentance as a means by which we gain salvation. We repent before Christ. We repent before God. But we must not be confused, for it is not our actions that bring us salvation. It is Christ's actions that bring us salvation. So it is not our repentance that saves us. We have to make sure we have a clear distinction in our minds about this. When we repent, that repentance does not wipe out our sin. God does. Jesus, through his sacrifice, wipes out our sin. Our repentance does not clear us of our sin. It does not purify our conscience. God does. God does that work. Not you. But repentance is still necessary in our coming to Jesus. It is a pathway of taking down the mountains, of raising up the valleys of pride, of shame, of guilt, that keep us from coming to Jesus Christ. Repentance, we will talk about what it is, but first we are focusing on what it isn't, because I think we have a lot of misconceptions about what repentance is for. Repentance is not a means of earning God's favor. We do not appease God's anger when we sin because we say, I'm sorry, God, would you please forgive me? Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you would like to turn there with me, we're going to read a few of these verses here. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, says... O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? For who, <clears throat> before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want you to learn from you. I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore, know that, the only, that only those who are, faith, who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you, all the nations, shall be blessed." So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I mean, that, that passage right there preaches the message that John the Baptist came to preach. And we could sit here and we could read this over and over and over again. The message here that we've read in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, is the message that says, People, 
Stop trying to do enough of the right things in order to gain God's favor. You are wasting your time. Because if you're trying to do enough to earn God's favor, then your condemnation is also based off of what you do or don't do properly, perfectly. If you are relying on the fact that you're doing this, you've done that, you've had this checklist of things, if I do these things, then I will have the favor of God. If I keep this list of rules, then I will have the favor of God. If these are the things that you're living by, then those are also the things that you will die by. And you already know that you haven't kept that list perfectly. You already know that you've fallen short of your own list, let alone the actual lists that are in the Old Testament of the law. But the law was not given so that you can be saved. The law was given so that you can come to the one who can save you from the curse that the law brings to us. It's the same story that John the Baptist came to preach. This repentance, this, I'm giving up, I'm giving up my works, I'm humbling myself before God, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Galatians 3 makes it clear to us that there's no particular prayer, there's no particular sin that you can abstain from long enough, there's no prayer of repentance that saves you or puts you in the good graces of God. Rather, as he stated over and over and over again, it is by faith. Abraham, he, quotes, he, he lists the story of Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith. When Abraham believed God, trusted the promise that no matter what happens, that God would be faithful to his promise, Abraham believed that no matter what stood in front of him by faith. What stood in front of him was not pretty. God told him to kill his son, the son of promise, to sacrifice his son on the altar. This was the son, Isaac, that was supposed to be the one that God made Abraham a whole nation out of. And now God is saying, put him on the altar and kill him? Abraham, he did not shrink back because of his faith, because he knew, you know what, God told me to do this, but he also promised this promise to me. You know what, I don't have to understand the way. I just have to have faith that God knows what he's doing. That faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That faith is what saved Abraham. Spoiler alert, God ended up not having him kill his son. But Abraham had to go through that test to see where his faith lied. Does his faith rely on what he sees and what he's doing and what he understands? Or does his faith lie in one who transcends the minds of man? Are you going to shrink back because of what you see the lies in front of you? The troubles that are in your life? Or are you going to seek God to obey him, to follow him by faith, knowing that he is the one who has the strength to fulfill all that he has promised? And so he quotes the story of Abraham as a means by which we are also saved. Why? Because it is... Typical for we people to look at the things that are in front of us. We have lists of rules. We have lists of do's and we have lists of don'ts that we like to rely on. 
if I do these things, if I make my life look like this, then surely that's something that the Lord will find favorable and he will let me into his pearly gates. But Paul in Galatians chapter 3 is saying, no, it's not about what you see in your life. It's about what you saw in Christ's. It's about Christ's life that you are to base your salvation off of, not your own. And the prophet Isaiah himself and John the Baptist both together knew these things. Isaiah knew that there was no hope for Israel within their own strength. They couldn't shepherd themselves into the green pastures. They couldn't do it. John the Baptist knew this, and that was his entire life. And he admitted this when they said, prepare the way of the Lord, not prepare the way of people. Prepare the way of the Lord because the Lord is coming. You need to be ready for him when he comes to you. Because when he comes to you, he's going to be bearing salvation for you. It is not prepare the way to go to the Lord when you die. It is prepare the way for the Lord when he comes to you. We have to get this direction issue right. Because the Lord is coming to you with salvation. You are not going to him with all of the things that you've accumulated in life as payment for salvation. He is coming, John the Baptist preached. He is coming. One more thing that repentance is not. Repentance is not the complete destruction of a particular sin. When we come to God in prayer, a lot of times we say, God, forgive me for X. It's weighing me down. Please take it away from me. Okay, so that's something that we should be praying because the Lord has the strength to free us from debilitating sin. But that is not the ministry of repentance that John the Baptist came with. But John does say in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And yes, he does say that, but he is not preaching a message that says, if you turn from that sin, you will earn salvation for your souls. That's not his point. In fact, the way John says this implies that turning from a sin in a way shows that you following the way of repentance. But John the Baptist is by no means saying that repentance is what saves you. It's just saying that you're on the right track. It's just saying there, there's the road that you're following. And in verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. For he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John here, John the Baptist, he is ready and he is excited to admit that the message that he preaches is not sufficient for the salvation of the people. He is passionate to tell the people that his purpose is not to lead the people to salvation itself. No, he fully understands that his purpose is to make ready the people for the one who is to come and bring salvation to them. That's what he understood. And he makes this clear in how he distinguishes himself from the one who is to come after him. He is quick to make sure the people understand that he is not the prophet who is going to come and save Israel. He does not hold back. He does not want the people to be confused. He wants them to understand that his message is not the message of salvation. His message is simply preparing the people for the one who will bring salvation. He is quick to distinguish himself from the one who is to come, which is Jesus. 
He says he's not even worthy to carry the sandals of this one who is coming. His service to this man, Jesus, is still, even though Jesus says that he is the greatest of all prophets, John the Baptist, he recognizes that even his measly service is a pitiful excuse for righteousness. Even even his disciples, who sat under John the Baptist and learned from him and followed him and did everything that he did, that's still a pitiful ministry compared to the ministry that Jesus Christ came with. And at his own at his own statements, his message is pitiful compared to the one that Jesus came to bring. So it is pitiful for us to look to righteousness as a means of salvation. John the Baptist himself, he wasn't upholding his message. He was simply preparing the way for Christ. And that's what righteousness is, is that's what repentance is for, to prepare the way. It's just preparations. That's all it is. So what exactly is repentance? Repentance is exactly what John the Baptist is there for. It is the ministry of a forerunner. John the Baptist was a forerunner, the one that goes before he unrolls the red carpet for the king to come into his palace. Repentance is just like John the Baptist. John the Baptist came before the Savior. Repentance comes before salvation is brought to you. Just as Christ overturned the tables in the temple during his Passion Week, which is coming upon us, because the people had ruined, had ruined the original design for the temple. They turned it into a vessel of greed, envy, exploitation, even an exploitation of that which is supposed to be sacred. The very temple itself, the place of worship that God prepared it to be, the people had ruined it by turning it into a, a mall, a storefront for greedy gain, taking advantage of people, not letting the Gentiles come and worship in the place that was designated for them to come and worship, which is where they had set up shop. So Christ came and overturned all that which was dead within the temple and brought life. And just like he overturned those tables in the temple, Jesus comes and overturns that which is wicked within us, casts it out. Why? So that he can restore the original purpose of this person. So that he can restore through salvation, through redeeming us from sin, the perfect righteousness that God wants us to have, without which we cannot stand before God. So salvation, having our sins removed and replaced with absolute and full righteousness, that's not the work of repentance. This transformation is a miracle that happens that will only happen once Christ enters the temple. Christ is the one that overturns us. Repentance is not what overturns us. The transformation of salvation is a miracle that must come from a miracle worker, which is Christ, he who heals the wounded, who justifies the ungodly. And that which is miraculous is not empowered in any way by the work of man. God does not need you to give him power so that he can perform a miracle. Repentance does not in any way give God power. God is all sufficient just within himself. He does not need you to help him. 
And just like John's ministry was not a ministry of preparing Christ for his work, John wasn't the teacher of Christ. He wasn't the older cousin who kind of showed him the way while he grew up. He wasn't showing Christ how to do his work. No, he was a ministry of preparing the landscape for the coming of the king. His ministry was preparing the people so that when Christ came, they were ready to receive him and the salvation that he brought. The prophecy in Isaiah includes landscape terminology to communicate what repentance does in you. Repentance prepares you for the coming of the king. It wasn't just Israel, this is you. Repentance prepares you for the coming of Jesus so that he can come and do his work, to do his miracle within you. It tears down the high hills of of the deceit of self-righteousness and brings you to understand that you'll never be able to do enough to convince God to love you and forgive you. It brings up the valleys of self-defeat that convince you that God could never forgive you or restore you or give you favor. You don't deserve it. Self-pity that comes with sin that Satan tries to convince us of. No, repentance literally means in the original language that the Bible was written in, it means to be with understanding. Repentance means simply to come to an understanding. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to ask for forgiveness. It doesn't mean to say sorry. It doesn't mean to give up everything that God is unpleased with. Repentance means to come to an understanding. So repentance is preparing yourself to receive an understanding, the proper truth. It's preparing yourself to receive the truth from God. Repentance is the forerunner of miracles. It is not the miracle itself. It is not what Christ gives motivation. It is not what gives Christ motivation to come to us. Rather, it is what prepares us to put our faith in the salvation that he's already brought to us so that we might willfully put our faith in him rather than continuing to walk in our vanity of our own understanding and our impulses. And this this cognitive alignment of our understanding, it always has practical results, don't get me wrong. In Luke's account of John the Baptist's ministry, in Luke chapter 3, Luke includes a, a portion of John's ministry in which he provides some practical suggestions for those with inquisitive minds. Look at that real quick, Luke chapter 3. If you would like. So this is, this is just a, a mirror story of John the Baptist. But Luke includes some different details that Matthew doesn't include. In verse 7 it says, Then he, this is John the Baptist, said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said this in Matthew, and we read that already. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Um, And then skipping down a little bit, he says in verse 10, So the people asked him, saying, Well, what shall we do then? He's saying, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Well, what does that mean? And then John the Baptist starts giving them suggestions that relate to big sins that these people struggle with. He says, hey, if you have two tunics, give one to him who doesn't have any. If you have food, give it to the person who, has, who doesn't have any. I was paraphrasing that verse. In verse 12, it says, then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to the tax collectors, 
collect no more than what is appointed for you. Because it was common for tax collectors to tell the people they owed more than they really did so they could keep more for themselves. So they were stealing in that regard. That was common, and people knew it. They just couldn't fight it. In verse 14, likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. Be content with your wages. So, you know, these soldiers, they would harass the people just because they could. They were soldiers. And he said, Don't do that. If you want to, show, if you want to repent, stop doing these things that you're doing, that you know are wrong. So, truly, repentance does come with fruits, but these fruits do not save you. These fruits are things that prepare you to receive the King of Glory. And that's what he was teaching these people by giving them specific things that they struggled with that said, hey, if you want to be baptized with this baptism of repentance, you need to show that you're actually doing this for the right reasons. That you're seeking the truth. That you're not just trying to check off some religious checkmark. Baptism is not a religious checkmark. Baptism is not for that. Baptism is not a salvific requirement. So back in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 11, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he was coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he goes on to talk about that fire and how that fire will be used not, not necessarily as a destructive tool, but as a revealing tool. Those of us who are made of wood, hay, and stubble, we will burn up and be no more. But those of us who God has transformed into gold, that fire will refine us and make us pure through his salvation. Those of us who hold on to our vain works. We are holding on to the wood, hay, and the stubble that will be burned. But those of us who repent, then we are preparing ourselves for God to purify us. We are preparing ourselves for God to purify us, he is teaching. See, God never meant for repentance or these practical teachings of things to get rid of to be means of salvation. Rather, the point was, if you submit to these hard things and you humble yourself before the ways of God in these particular manners, which are hard for you, then when the miracle of God's salvation approaches you, you will be ready to receive it. You will be ready to receive that salvation once you have humbled yourself before God. And humility always reveals itself in the way you live your life. And in verse 15, says, but Jesus, okay, so Jesus came to John. He wanted to be baptized. And John says, no, I can't baptize you. What? This, this isn't the way it should go. No, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. But then Jesus answered him and said, permit, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John the Baptist allowed him to be baptized. Again, John is quick to remind us that he is not the bearer of the saving miracle. Christ will bring that. He said that. 
I do not have that, John the Baptist says. I'm just getting ready for when Christ comes with his salvation. I'm preparing the hearts and minds for when Christ to come. For when Christ comes, he will bring glorious salvation. And I keep repeating that same thing because we need to retrain our understanding. That's like I said, that's what repentance means, after all, to come to an understanding. And salvation can be severely and damnably missed by just a little sliver of falsehood. So we need to be careful to under, know what we are understanding and to understand it rightly. That it is not my prayer, that it is not my repentance, that it is not the fact that I go to church on a regular basis, that I haven't committed most of the sins in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it's impossible to really not commit any of them. Especially considering the Ten Commandments are just an overview of all of the law. But I'm not saving myself by these things. John the Baptist is telling that Christ is bringing the salvation when he comes. You are not going to him to get it with all of the favorable things that you think you have. He will purge us. And he will thresh his people externally. He said, John the Baptist said in verse 12 and 11. He's going to thresh his people. That means kind of to stir up all of the worthless things. Those who receive Christ will be children of Abraham indeed, who receive him by faith, like we read in Galatians chapter 3. The faith of Abraham that doesn't look at the things that's in front of you, but rather look at God and his power and his ability to perform a miracle. So we are the children of Abraham who receive him by faith, apart from the works of the law. The rest... Jesus will come and he will cast out and they will be punished with unquenchable fire because they did not receive the long-awaited Christ when he came, nor did they consider God's works to be enough, but rather they traded the miracle of God and his works for self-appeasing, personally fitting righteousness that I made myself. You know, my kids like to make crafts. And they, they're so proud of those things when they make them. In fact, the, the little, um, the little uh, tomb on the back table in the back, Jayla and Tucker made that with the assistance of my wife. And they're just so proud of the things that they make. Jayla was painting yesterday, beautiful pictures. And it was funny to watch her do this because she, she came out with one picture that she really loved. And it's pretty, pretty great. And I loved it. But to get to that one picture that she was super proud of, she crumpled up a bunch of other paintings. And she was, you know, at one point she was just crying because she was just so displeased with these paintings that she didn't get right. <laughs> but finally she got to a picture that she was proud of. Mom, Dad, look at this. I'm done. I love, you know, <laughs> this is a beautiful picture. And it was beautiful. And sometimes we try to get God's favor in the same way. You know, oh, I'm so frustrated with these sins that I keep, keep falling to. Oh, here's something I did that's really great. God, here. Well, are you pleased with me now? <laughs> this is, I'm really proud of this one. You know, I, I saw somebody walking on the side of the road and they looked like they needed help. So I picked them up and I, I drove them to their destination. Oh, God, aren't you pleased with me now? <laughs> oh, he's got to be happy with me now. 
And we're like that. And we should try to please our Father through doing good, but the accumulation of good things that we're proud of are not the things that God looks upon and says, oh, that person's worthy of salvation. That person is worthy of the miracle of life. No. The threshing that Christ does with the fire is not just externally where there are some people that are obviously going to reject Jesus and those people will not be part of God's people. And then there are people who will accept Jesus and those people will be God's people. But he's also going to thresh us internally. Those who are God's people, he stirs up the worthless things within us. He separates our sins from us and he wipes them out. I mean, this is kind of an image of what happens when God actually saves you. When he restores your perfection, when he gives you righteousness, he stirs up all the sins that are within you, just like chaff, and lets the wind drive them all away so that the only thing that remains are the things that are actually worth something. Your sin is worth nothing. Your vain pursuits are worth nothing. And God will stir those things up. He will burn them. He will get rid of them. So that the only thing that remains is the righteous you that God prepared. And that will be enough when God saves you. He'll take all of your sins, all of your worthless deeds, He will burn them and take them away. He threshes His people internally, inside of us, so that the only thing that remains is the gold, the pure, the righteous. Now, when Jesus did come to John the Baptist, Jesus came requesting to himself, be baptized by John. Now, this is a question that I remember asking many times as a you know, younger man. Why in the world did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus want to be baptized? Like, he didn't need to repent. He didn't need to do anything. And John the Baptist actually tried to refuse Christ, as we read already. Probably because he knew, one... He didn't deserve to serve the Christ. He didn't deserve to carry his sandals, let alone baptize him. And two, Christ needed no repentance. Nothing. He didn't do anything wrong. But Jesus told John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is doing is saying, John the Baptist, now you're passing the baton. Your ministry has done its work. Now I am here. And now I'm going to take it from here. And now I'm going to take those that you have prepared. And now I'm going to go save them. Thank you, John. And John the Baptist himself said later on, it's time for me to decrease and for him to increase. I've done my part. And shortly after this, John the Baptist was killed. His, time, his, his work was done. He had fulfilled his purpose. He no longer needed to be a prophet that people followed rather than Jesus Christ. Another question is here, in verse 15 he says, Permit it to be, Jesus says this, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Who's he talking about? I'm sorry about that. It is fitting for us to fulfill righteousness. Is he talking about him and John the Baptist? No, he is not. 
He's talking about the triune God. He's talking about him, his Father, the Holy Spirit. They are all coming together on this in one big show. One big, extravagant, transcendent act is coming to earth. It is the highness of the Trinity here. The Trinity is at work here. For the first time since the fall of man, back in the Garden of Eden, when God created everything and said, let us make man in our image, now we see the Trinity return to the dust of the ground as he did before. At creation, the Trinity said, let us make man in our image. And now Christ, the spokesperson for the Trinity here, is saying, let us now restore our own image in man. The time is right. And it is therefore fitting that we restore the righteousness that was lost. The image of us that we placed in man that was lost because of sin. And fulfill our desire for righteousness in these people. So he, came, he was here. The whole Trinity was here on this earth. Back before sin when he made man in his Our image. And now we see Jesus again coming, speaking for the Trinity, saying, let us fulfill all righteousness. Let us restore that which we made in man that they lost because of sin. The Trinity comes back to the scene. John did not say a word at this point. He knew that he stood on holy ground. And therefore, in his own insecurity and overwhelming sense of unworthiness, he kept silent. And he brought no other argument. Nothing. For who can honor his own wisdom with speaking a word when the Lord of glory stands before him in the might and the wisdom of the whole Trinity upon him? And then we see all the members of the heavenly sovereign in one accord. Look at this. And he says, so Jesus being baptized here. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and alighting on him. And then suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see the whole Trinity at work here. The Holy Spirit is laid upon Christ like a dove, providing the power to Christ to bring about his righteousness. And then the Father thundering his voice from the infinite cosmos, approving and commissioning his son for the work ahead, already accepting the work that he was to perform, covering Jesus with his work and with his pleasure. The fullness of God is in this moment here. And in this story of John the Baptist, where you can see how John the Baptist was right to humble himself. Say, no, my, my ministry of trying to bring the people to repentance, is not, it's not the thing that's going to save them. Oh, Jesus, he is coming, and he's coming to save, because he is the one who is mighty to do so. I am not mighty to save, Jesus is, and he's coming. And when you, each one of you, when you receive the Christ and the righteousness that he brings to you, through the refining and purging miracle of the Holy Spirit, you then enter into the infinite pleasure of the Father. The Holy Spirit comes upon you, just like he came upon Christ. You don't necessarily see a dove in this day and age. 
but you still receive that same Holy Spirit that empowered Christ to bring the ministry of salvation to the people. He, when you receive his ministry of salvation, he comes upon you, and the Father also delights in you and sends you forth. Just as Christ was not rejected by the Father, neither will you fear being rejected or refused by the Father. According to His goodwill, according to His nature, because God cannot reject Himself, and He will not reject His Son, and He will not reject any of those that the Son brings to Him. So if you receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, you will never be rejected by God. Is that not awesome? We feel miserable on a regular basis because life just is not what I want it to be. I have these defeating sins that, ah, they annoy me so much. I always feel like God is angry with me. That God has some bone to pick with me. He's never pleased. But no, in Jesus Christ, we see a completely different story than the story we constantly tell ourselves, which honestly is probably the devil trying to tell you and convince you of. To give you a different understanding that keeps you from the gospel. No, but when you're in the Son and the Son brings you to the Father, you will never be rejected or refused by God. His pleasure is upon you, not His displeasure. Because when when your unrighteousness is gone through salvation... When you are righteous and holy and pure because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is nothing left for God to be unpleased with. There's nothing left for him to hate because it's gone. He threshed it. He burnt it. It didn't just grow up again. No, it's gone. You receive the pleasure of the Father. Now you enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. There's no more cause for weeping, for the Lord himself has become your portion and your praise and your highest glory. All the things of the earth will fade, and the Lord will endure within you forever, and you with him forever, for he has already received you. He has made the path straight for you to come to him. So will you humble yourself and repent and receive his salvation Will you walk this path that has been paved for you, the mountains brought low, the valleys brought up? Will you walk that road that has been set before you? Will you deny your self-made righteousness? You know, many times it's a message of, if you want to be saved, you've got to deny your sins. No. Here, you need to deny your self-righteousness. You need to deny that impulse within yourself to try to feel good enough for God to receive you. You need to deny yourself righteousness if you're going to come to God and repent. It's not about, you know, for the Jews, they were obsessed with the fact that they were children of Abraham by blood. They had to get over that because John the Baptist said, hey, God could raise up children of Abraham from these rocks on the ground. That's just because you have the blood of Abraham flowing through your veins doesn't mean anything about righteousness. In fact, these rocks on the ground have never done anything wrong. (laughs) They're more righteous than you. Will you walk this path of humility and just deny self-righteousness and receive a better, perfect righteousness that will never pass away, 
It will never tarnish or rust over the years. This righteousness that will grow purer and more glorious as the Lord continues to purify you through life. Will you enter into Christ's faith? Today, praise the Lord if you already have. But if you have not, and you have seen a better way through repentance, through understanding truly what it is to be saved, will you come and walk that road of salvation through repentance? Not salvation from repentance, salvation at the end of the road. The road by which Jesus comes and saves you, the mighty King. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your goodness and your great mercy and that fact that there is a way for you to be pleased with me, to be pleased with us, without us being better. There is a way for you to be pleased with us, to make us holy and righteous through our own resting. Lord, we deny our self-made righteousness. We deny our, we burn up our checklists. And we come to our knees either begging for your mercy or thankful for the mercy that you've already given us. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be in our hearts, that he will teach us, that he will train us according to the truth. I pray that we would abstain, we would reject the falsehood that says, you can do enough. Give us the strength, Lord, to confront our accuser, Satan, when he comes to us with falsehood, trying to distract us from the work of Christ so that we could rely on our own works. I pray that we would not be bewitched with this falsehood that has led many astray and leads us astray and threatens us, threatens our peace, it threatens our faith. Lord, give us strength to endure the oppressor. And I thank you. We worship you. We fall on our face, honoring you and glorifying you for calling us for choosing to to save somebody like me. It is a mystery indeed that you would save somebody like me without me having to to make a way to try to appease you. No, rather you've appeased yourself through the sacrifice of your son on our behalf. And we worship you because of that. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.